Isaiah chapter 7. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, king of Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they did not overpower it. Now the son of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz in his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Uzziah, Go out, you and your son Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the Welshman's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smouldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabul king over it. Yet this is what the Sovereign Lord says. It will not take place, it will not happen, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, it is not enough to try the patience of men. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrongs and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrongs and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time like unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Thank you, Steve. I think I'm on, yep. Um, promises, think about promises this morning. When we think about promises, do you think about politicians per chance? Anyone? Yeah? I tend to. Um, maybe if you're more spiritual, you think about God. He makes promises. And exceedingly great and very precious promises that will not be broken. Think about the year that has been in terms of politics. Just 
Some of the things that come to my mind are Donald Trump's stunning election victory and the uh, being named Time Person of the Year for 2016. The Brexit vote. The President of South Korea is being called on to step down or face impeachment for bribery and corruption. The President of the Philippines and his unbelievable comments, um, a whole range of things. The New Zealand Prime Minister John Keyes has resigned from office recently to spend more time with his family. And I was intrigued to find out that until he had stood aside and was replaced, New Zealand had only had two Prime Ministers this century, whereas Australia's had six. A fair bit more stability. What about our agonisingly drawn out eight weeks federal election campaign? I was awfully relieved when that was over. And it, and it almost resulted in a hung parliament. The stunning comeback, if you can call it that, of Pauline Hanson. Darren Hinch, the human headline, gets elected to the Senate. The demise of Clive Palmer and the PUP party, Palmer United Party, that's anything but united. Um, South Australia defeated its 15th euthanasia bill. They've had 15 cracks at this, of getting euthanasia through, and it was defeated just last month by one vote. And the marriage plebiscite proposal looks like it's died, and uh, the list could go on. A whole lot of things have happened this year in politics. Promises, promises, promises. We've become so cynical of politicians' promises that few of us actually think with any degree of confidence that they're going to come to pass. Uh, except if you're Donald Trump, because the US stock market basically rises or falls on every utterance he makes. They think, you know, World War is going to break out and disaster's going to happen. They seem to take his word very, very seriously, whereas most other politicians, it sort of doesn't rate. Twitter goes into overdrive and columnists and bloggers spend a lot of time about all of this. And I have to keep reminding myself that some people make a living from this and they actually thrive on it and thoroughly enjoy it. It seems, though, that there really is nothing new under the sun because all of the above, in one way or another, has been going on for thousands of years. In fact, Isaiah chapter 7 is such a chapter. There's it's a chapter where there's intrigue and plot and alliances and conniving and planning to try and bring about pre-desired, predetermined outcomes. So if you just have a look, um, open up your Bibles with me, and I, I've, it's taken me a fair bit of time this week to just try and get this sorted out in my own mind. I can imagine what it's like to come at this cold turkey and try and make sense of it. So I'm just going to give you a potted version, just a quick summary of what's going on here so you can see what's happening. Now, it's not too detailed, it's just, just hang with it. There's an alliance between the king of Syria and Pekah, son of Romalia, king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and there's lobbying and pressuring Ahaz, the king of Judah, 
to side with them against the looming military threat of the Assyrians. So the, 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 the northern king and, and, and his friend are aligning themselves to try and get Judah on board with them to oppose the Assyrians who are over in this direction and uh, are a rising power. So it would be a little bit like, say, America putting pressure on Australia to uh, get on board with opposing China with the South China Sea and their desire to, to take over or putting pressure on the Philippines to sort of come on board with us because we don't want them to, to take over. That's what's going on in the chapter. And terrified, Ahaz responds. You know what he does? He, he actually decides to go to Assyria. He takes a whole lot of gold and silver out of the temple treasury. You can read about this in 2 Kings 16. And he, and he offers it to the king of Assyria, the very guy that these other ones are trying to oppose and get him on board against. He goes to the Assyrian king and gives him all this stuff out of the temple in the hope that that will curry favour with him and therefore he won't invade Israel. In fact, he'll turn his attention on the other guys in the north. So that's what's going on, conniving, manipulating, planning, trying to figure it out in his own strength. And this strategy worked for a while, but ultimately it failed because if you think about it, if someone pays you money... They're not committed to you out of love or affection or esteem or on the basis of some kind of covenant agreement. It's just a working arrangement. It's just like hiring. I've hired you. It's a mercenary kind of arrangement. So it it backfired because it was mercenary and it wasn't out of respect or friendship. And Isaiah then goes to Ahaz and challenges him. And he says, verse 3, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smouldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us divide Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says, it will not take place. It will not happen. So he's saying, stand your ground. You've gone and formed this alliance unnecessarily because it wasn't going to happen anyway, at least in the short term. So since the Lord loves his people and keeps all his promises, Isaiah is encouraging Ahaz to lean upon the Lord and look to him and say, God is my strength. God will look after us. The Lord has made a covenant with his people. He said, my presence will go with you. He's saying, you are my people and I am your God. I will be your father and you will be to me as a son. I will look after you. You honour me and I will honour you. Turn to the Lord, look to him and he will be your strength. 
your, your shield and your exceedingly great reward. This is the, the, the gist of what Isaiah is getting across to Ahaz. But Ahaz doesn't listen. Look at verse 10. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God as a sign, whether in the deep, deepest depths or in the highest heights. In other words, ask God for the biggest kind of sign you could think of. Right up into the heavens or right down in, into Sheol itself, ask anything. In other words, of a, of a divine nature, test God and see if he isn't going to be faithful to you in this. And Ahaz gives this response. He said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. The reason behind it is he'd already figured out what he was going to do. He'd already made this alliance and, and he, he had his plots and his plans and he was committed to it. But to save face and to appear pious and righteous, he says, I won't, I won't put the Lord to the test. And Isaiah says, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And will call him Emmanuel. He'll be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. In other words, by the time he's, he's old enough basically to know right and wrong. Some say that's probably around the age of three and others put it up more towards some age of, of semi-adult responsibility around 12, 13 where you're old enough to know better. And it's probably that sort of age. So this is the dynamics of what's unfolding and this is the context in which this promise is given of a virgin will conceive and bear a son and you'll call him Emmanuel that, that Matthew quotes as a fulfillment of the birth of Jesus but there's a warning that comes with it isn't there look what it says in in verse 9 the head of Ephraim is Samaria the head of Samaria is only Romalia's son doesn't even name him, just calls him Romalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. If you do not stand firm in your faith as king, representing your people, standing firm and confident in he who promised is faithful, then you won't stand at all. Your kingdom will collapse. A house divided against itself cannot stand. So this scenario has been repeated countless times throughout history, hasn't it? The devilish fork in the road between trusting in the Lord and leaning on our own understanding. Have you ever reached that fork? Have you ever come to that junction where you've been tempted to say, okay, I know what God says, but it just doesn't seem to make too much sense to me. This way seems to make a whole lot more sense. And have you been tested and tempted to lean on your own understanding? Figure it out and think that you're wiser than God? You probably wouldn't put it like that and say that you're wiser than God, but 
it's a great temptation to us flawed human beings to trust in our own understanding, to be wise in our own eyes, to think that we've got all the facts at hand to make an informed decision. But almost always, our worst fears never happen. The things that we fear actually don't seem to happen. And all the while, Jesus is saying, do not fear. Do not worry about tomorrow, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear, for the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Come to me that you might have rest. Look to me. Ask of me and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. O ye of little faith. All of these things are just different ways Jesus is challenging his followers to say, when you come to the fork in the road, don't doubt my character. Don't doubt my promises. Rely on me. Trust me and I won't let you down. My way is the right way. It's the good way. Choose that. So through Isaiah, the Lord challenges Ahaz to ask for a sign. And Ahaz, as I mentioned, declines. And God says, all right, then I'm going to give you a sign. And you could hardly get a bigger one than saying that a virgin is going to conceive and bear a child. And you'll call his name Emmanuel, God with us. But can you begin to see now why that particular sign is chosen? Because at this fork in the road, Ahaz is balking at trusting God, wondering, is, can this really be? How is this going to work out? Surely I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to take money out of the, the treasury of the temple and I'm going to have to work out an alliance with the Assyrian king to stave off what's going on here because I just can't see any other solution. And even though God had sent Isaiah to him saying, it will not happen. Your worst fears aren't going to materialise. Trust me in this. He can't bring himself to actually walk that walk of of walking by faith, not by sight. And I'm sure... Most of us here, if not all of us, can really relate to that. It's so human, isn't it? It's so kind of normal to just rely on our own understanding, to, to think that we know what's going to be best and figure it out. So in that situation... God gives this amazing promise through Isaiah that a virgin is going to conceive and bear a son. And and that son's name, Emmanuel, is going to represent everything embodied in the promise that could have been Ahaz's if he trusted God. That God would be with his people. God would not leave Ahaz. God would be with him through this uncertain time of feeling threatened by a bigger kingdom but trusting in the Lord. I'm sure we've all faced circumstances where we've felt overwhelmed, where we've faced things that we think, there's no way this is going to work out or I'm not going to survive this. 
It might, might be relationship breakdown. It might be unemployment. It could be that you are pursuing a particular career path and then the door gets slammed suddenly, unexpectedly. And, and you think, why? How? This, how can this be? But God has his ways of working things out, working all things together for good. There's been a lot of debate over whether we should translate Isaiah 7.14 as virgin or as young woman. The actual Hebrew word is young woman. There's a separate word, virgin. It's just that normally in that culture, a young woman was a virgin. And that's clearly how Matthew understands it. And it's clearly how the, the interpreters, the translators of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek took it because they translated it with the word virgin, parthenos. So when it's saying to us, look, God who's able to do this in a way that humanly speaking, yes, we can see how it's going to work out. It'll be a young woman and she'll, you know, be, you know, she'll have a husband and the child will be born. But through it, God is saying there's going to be a bigger fulfilment because this is happening 700 years before it all came to pass. So how could a 700-year forward promise be of much help to Ahaz in his figuring out what will I do here? Would I trust the king and form the alliance or not? It seems that there is probably some kind of nearer fulfilment of a birth and we see evidences of this in the passage because Isaiah's own sons are prophetic. Look at verse 3 of chapter 7. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz in, in, at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool. Why would he have to take his son? Well, just have a look at the footnote. It explains what the name of his son means. And it says, Shear Jashub means a remnant will return. A remnant will return. So Isaiah's going out with a remnant will return to say to Ahaz, a remnant will return. God is going to be faithful and you're not going to be wiped off the map. God is going to look after you. And you see it uh, coming out in chapter 3. Look at, uh, sorry, chapter 8. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to me, Take a large scroll, write on it with an ordinary pen, Mahershalal Hashbaz. You heard that before? <laughs> Mahershalal Hashbaz. So I called in Uriah the priest and Zechariah son of Berechiah as reliable witnesses for me that I made love to the prophetess, that's his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, name him Maher, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. <coughs> Sticking in my throat. From before the boy knows how to say, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. 
And then the Lord speaks to him again. So his sons are prophetic. He's saying, the very name of your sons is going to represent something about my covenant faithfulness. Trust me. So through these chapters, Isaiah warns of God's anger over Judah's sin. But through um, the gloom of the warning and the doom of judgment, there are these glimmers, these shafts of hope and encouragement. Thank you. So that God is faithful. And he's going to look after his people. I think this is a great encouragement for us. Do you believe that God is able to deliver you? That the heart of Isaiah's message is the heart of the gospel? God, our loving but righteously offended creator, has forged a way through from his side. When we were bound in sin, he forged a way through to redeem us. When, when Ahaz balks at, making, you know, at, at asking for a sign, God comes through on his side and says, well, I'll give you a sign. He who promised is faithful and he will do it. And, and it's just so typical of God. And I was thinking about this and I thought, how, how can, what would be a picture of this? And I can't go past the Beaconsfield mine disaster. It reminds me so much of the gospel. Think about it. 37-year-old Brant Webb, 34-year-old Todd Russell get trapped helplessly in a squashed metal cage almost a kilometre underground for two weeks. They're helpless. They're trapped. They, can't, they can hardly lift a finger. Unless help comes literally from above, they, they're gone. Teams work around the clock, first to locate them, then to get the right equipment brought in to drill a hole to get some food and water down to them and to pass iPods so they can listen to a bit of music and, and give them something to read so they've got something to while away the time because you've got nothing to do but you're right up next to your mate and you, got, you can't go to the loo, you can't go off to the loo you, <laughs> for two weeks. You just think of this, the scenario and so some little slivers of encouragement are given to them, something to help comfort and, and say, look, Help is on its way. Hope does lie above. Trust us in this. And then the hole gets widened enough to extract them. They're located and, and uh, brought to the surface. They're showered and Todd Russell clocks off. And they're taken off for a checkup, and they enjoy the freedom and reconciliation with loved ones and the sense of release and wow, how good. Whew, thank you. In a way, that is a beautiful picture of the gospel. It's a compelling picture. By nature, we lie buried in the rubble of the fall, encaged by sin, encased in our own mess, unable to lift ourselves up under the sentence of death, unable to help ourselves, and our only hope lies in help from above. Meanwhile, up above, God moves heaven and earth to get through to us. 
He taps and burrows and bores and makes a way through the hardness of our hearts and the debris of our miserable circumstances to get our attention and to connect with us. He keeps going until the day he breaks through into our hearts. Then he sends the bread and water of life to sustain us. And he gives us promises and, and, and says, look, we're working on it. It, it will work out. You, you are going to be delivered. He sends through messages of encouragement and hope, plus warnings about what not to do. They had medicos warning them, saying, you know, be careful about this, be careful about that. All the while, he keeps widening and lengthening the supply line to us. And in due course, he lifts us up and washes us clean from all our filth and puts new clothes on us and we clock off out of this life into the joy and the liberty of the children of God, into the celebration of the angels, into the table that is prepared for us, the exceedingly great and precious promises that the Lord has promised for his people. He gives us a complete checkup and a clean bill of health. We're made perfect in the twinkling of an eye and we receive dishonoured guests at the table spread for us. Faith is believing in Emmanuel, God with us, the God of covenant faithfulness, who will not let us go, who has acted for our good through his son by sending his son into the world so that 700 years later, whatever the immediate fulfilment might have been for Ahaz, a much greater deliverance comes in the birth of Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary. And it's the fulfilment of this promise and it pictures the gospel. We who from our side couldn't get through, God from his side gets through. When we're not willing to ask God, when we're not willing to trust God, God's willing to still deliver on his side for us and say, you mean too much to me. I won't leave you or forsake you. Isaiah speaks to Christians today and truly we get nowhere in the Christian life without faith, do we? We need to exercise faith that trustful obedience to God based on his loving character and his faithful word, that he's truthful and will do all he's promised, that he knows the way through whatever lies ahead and, and will make a way where there seems to be no way and that he's our father and he will guide and sustain us and will never forsake us because he's Emmanuel, he's God with us, he's pledged himself to us, he's become one of us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. So God has permanently incarnated himself amongst us, wedded himself to humanity and said, I am going to take you to be my bride. I've given myself for you. That when we come to that fork in the road, we can trust God. We can listen to the words of Jeremiah 6.16. This is what the Lord says, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. 
Jesus says, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. Clearly, there are some promises we can trust. God's promises. Like the heroes of old described in Hebrews 11, we dare to believe that Emmanuel is God with us. And we will walk with joyful confidence in that reality. And Christmas is, is literally, around. it celebrates that. Not the tinsel and glitter and Christmas trees and Santa of Christmas that the world has made it, but the birth of God's Son that we celebrate, this Emmanuel, this, this God who comforted himself to us, who's promised and is faithful and who delivers on his promises. And when we're stretched and tested by life's pressures and, and pitfalls, let us declare, I walk by faith, not by sight. I trust in Jehovah Jireh, my provider, whose grace is sufficient for me. And we, we speak back gospel truth to ourselves to walk in the reality of, of faith, not by sight. That whenever we succumb yet again to sin and despair of its wretched hold on our hearts, let us cry to Emmanuel, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And he hears us. He hears the cry of our hearts. And if you're bone tired and soul weary or confused about the right way to go, let let us turn to our Saviour and find rest for our souls. Let us lie down in the green pastures of gospel peace and grace. Drink from the quiet waters of his mercy and his peace that surpasses all understanding. He, those exceedingly great and very precious promises are by way of encouragement to us that we might be nurtured in our faith and grow in our character and trust God. If our friends are walking a path that our conscience cannot abide or they poke fun at our scribbles of faith, let us return to our first love. Let us hide ourselves in our Saviour. Let us remind ourselves that a little bit of sin will work its way like leaven through everything it touches and that God's grace is sufficient for us and his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Let us look to him and be saved. Look to him and receive strength and encouragement. Let us be strong in the grace that's found in Christ Jesus. Let us know that, that, that he dwells among us full of grace and truth, that we might share in grace and truth and dwell with him forever. And these are not just pious words with no meaning. This is God's promise to us. Let us look to him and be radiant in the reflected glow of his grace and truth. These are promises we can count on. Are you counting on them? I know that a number of you have been confronted with circumstances where you've been forced back upon the grace of God because you don't have strength, either physically through an illness that doctors have tried and circumstances uh, just haven't worked themselves out and you look to God. Some of you have had 
real fixes, real problems where you just say, Lord, I don't know. I I don't have the strength. You're going to have to get me out of this. You're going to have to work it through. And God's building your faith. He's putting you through that testing of your faith that, that it might be refined like fire and become as precious as gold, exceedingly precious to him. Promises that can be counted on. He who came to dwell among us, to die and rise from the grave, who ascended to heaven and reigns in glory, who is preparing a place for us, will come again and will gather us to be with himself, that we might be with him forever. Emmanuel, God with us. That's the heart of Christmas. Let's trust our God. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you that you are so reliable. Thank you that your your character is such that your word is your bond. You begin things and you never give up. You always finish what you begin. You've begun a good work and you will complete it. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you have plans and purposes, much of which still lies hidden from from us. But the secret things belong to the Lord our God, that we may do all the words of this law and know that our God is faithful. We want to be like Joshua and meditate upon your promises, meditate upon the word of the Lord that is truth, that it would be a guard to our feet and a guide to our path that it would lead us in paths of righteousness and when we come to those forks in the road where we tempted to trust our own understanding that we will learn even from our mistakes and failures that your way is better our God only gives good gifts to his children If we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will you, our Heavenly Father, give good gifts to those who trust him? And so, Lord, we look to you. Grow our faith. Develop our confident trust in you, that you are a reliable God, that you are utterly committed to building your church, so much so that you have become one of us and you dwelt among us and you've placed in us the deposit of your spirit guaranteeing what is to come. That this good news of the gospel is something we can count on, build our lives on, live our lives by. And when we are weak and we stumble and we fall, you lift us up. A righteous man falls seven times but rises seven times. Because on your side, you never give up. Though we are faithless, you are faithful. You remain true to your word. So, Lord, you are our rock. Bless any here today who might struggle, who might be looking for clear guidance, a word from on high. Help them to know, Lord, that you're burrowing through and widening the the life-saving tunnel 
and that you will bring us out safe and secure in the end. In your name we pray.